Jesse Douglas Smith McGraw, and this is What Moves You with Jesse. I'm a transformative coach on a mission to share an understanding of how our minds work that challenges how we react to life and our thoughts. I love to share stories and common sense ideas that empower you to take charge of yourself in a way that brings immediate and profound change. What I know to be true is that we are all innately healthy and doing our best with the thinking we have available to us on a moment-to-moment basis. And waking up to this will change what moves you. I'm so happy you're here. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to What Moves You with Jesse. This week's conversation is one that I've been longing to have far before I knew I would be expanding the vision of this podcast to incorporate interviews. He is an award-winning journalist, including being named Emerging Journalist of the Year by the National Association of Black Journalists in 2012. He was a staff writer for the LA Times, covering music and pop culture for a decade. And before I go on to sing more of his praises, (laughs) I was lucky enough to be his neighbor for a short yet very impactful era in both of our lives. Garrett Kennedy, in my eyes, is a quiet force of nature with a twinkle in his eye, that lets you know he's paying attention, not only to what you're saying, but to where your words are coming from. This, to me, is what makes him an incredible journalist, cultural critic, and author. In the time that we were neighbors, as he will talk more about in the interview, Garrick penned his first book, Parental Discretion is Advised, The Rise of NWA and the Dawn of Gangsta Rap. And he recently completed the forthcoming Didn't We Almost Have It All, an exploration of the life and career of Whitney Houston, which I'm so excited to get my hands on when it's released in February of 2022. His writing has appeared in GQ, Wall Street Journal Magazine, Men's Health, NPR Music, Spin, Playboy, Teen Vogue, Shondaland, Cultured Magazine, and so much more. Woo! Let's jump in to hear more about the life experiences from the man himself, Garrett Kennedy. Hi, Garrick. Hello. <laughs> How are you? I, I'm great. I'm you great. This is I, I'm so excited to be here with you. So yeah, I'm I am very good. That's so good. I, I want to thank you. I know I've already thanked you, but I want to thank you again for joining the show, being on What Moves You with Jesse, because it is um it's just so important to me to share so many different people's um experiences of life coming from all different backgrounds and careers. And um, 
learning more about you and being able to share you with the world is uh, really a gift. And I'm so honored that you would join. So thank you. Oh my gosh. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yes. So I'm, I might have meant, I might mention this in the intro, but it's a nice little warmer upper. Um, you and I met <laughs> as neighbors. I was very lucky yes. to run into you. Um, while you were in the process of birthing, I want to say your first baby, right? Your first, yeah. your first book, um, uh, parental discretion is advised about NWA and, uh, it was for me being your neighbor and really only kind of witnessing you from the outside and watching you, you know, go inside and be so focused and then come out of, come out of the den is kind of what it felt like, you know, <laughs> and being able to share like what it's been like, you know, while you were in the process of it. Um, it was really, it was really inspiring for me, even though I wasn't totally involved in getting into your head about how is this going for you? It was just from the outside looking in really inspiring to see somebody be so passionate about telling a story about a part of pop culture that I think um, we all don't know too much about. Yeah. And a lot of what I read that you write, um, and of course, by the end, we'll tell people where they can find more of, you know, your writings and things, your essays and stuff. But something that I really appreciate um, is that you really your perspective when you are writing on artists and pop culture, you're looking at, I had father Greg on from homeboy industries a few weeks mm -hmm. ago. And he talked about how the homies say, what is the thorn underneath that is kind of driving all of the insecurity and the behavior that kind of comes out of us as humans. Yeah. And the through line I've noticed in a lot of what you write is that you really inspect the thorn underneath and the people mm. that you write about. And for me personally, that really is exciting because I get to actually feel like I'm seeing a bigger picture of that person. What, um, and then I'm going to take you back to like, make you tell us about who you are and how you started, but just give me a tiny bit of what, what, what is that? What it, what, where does that come from for you? That, that 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 is what interests you, not the flashy stuff on top, but the fact that you you dive deep and you go into people's psyches and emotional experience and and explore that. What? Wow. Oh my I know goodness. I started That's, big. Sorry. Yeah, I love that. No, it's great. Um, <laughs> gosh, you know, I I'm asked a, a variation of that often and you would think I would have an answer, but mostly why I never have an answer is because I don't realize I do it. Um, it's never been an intentional thing. I think for me, I've always thought, you know, what is it that I want to know? I mean, that just is how I go into every interview, no matter if it is an artist that I have loved forever and grew up listening to and like I'm pitching myself that I'm like sitting next to them, or if it is, you know, someone that we've just seen in a film or something. And it's like, this is the first role. I know nothing about you. And I've been thrown into this whole thing. So I, I kind of go into it all the same. I just, I've always had a curiosity. It's why 
I became a journalist is why I always wanted to be a journalist. But, you know, why I always wanted to write about culture was because I grew up um, loving it in a particular way, but also having this huge fascination. You know, I'm from the Midwest, I'm from Ohio. Um, there was no access to it in a way that I believe that living in LA, we all have such a close proximity to, whether or not we want to. I mean, this is. You know, this is a city where you can be walking to go get coffee and now you're in the middle of a set or you can um, be out shopping and you run into someone that you've seen on a million different things. And it's like, oh, OK, you know, there's there's such a um, there's such an abundance of privilege that comes with living in, in L.A. that when I moved out here, I was always thinking about people like me who were looking at all of this stuff in Cincinnati or um, whatever part of the country you come from that's not on one of the coasts where these worlds really coexist in a big way. Um, and I always just wanted to write the things for them. What do they want to know? What, are, what, are, what interests them? But also beyond that, um, so much of what I had really kind of encountered, particularly early in my career, is you started to kind of see how it all worked in a way where you know that when this person comes and does this interview, they're gonna say the same talking points. And so when you start reading these things, you realize, oh, this person is going to say the same thing over and over. And it's not because they don't have anything interesting to say, but that's just kind of how the whole world moves, right? That's how part of like the, the world that I'm in, which is, you know, cultural, criticism and um, cultural writing and reporting, you know, it is a world where everybody is kind of doing um, the same interviews with the same people over and over, right? There was this, it was this, this, this clip of Jamie Lee Curtis that went viral um, a week or so ago about um, when she was on the promo campaign for previous Halloweens and that she was repeating the word trauma, but she was talking about it in every interview. So I did a super cut of all these interviews where she says this one word, it's about trauma. And so, so much of what I had remembered when I started reading the stories from other people that I had worked with as well, of like, oh, you're gonna talk about this, 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 and this. So I probably don't have to ask you. You know, so it really just kind of started something as simple as that of like, I don't need to ask you this particular question because you've answered it in four other places but i was really curious about this one thing that you didn't say or this one part of that answer that you gave over and over and over that was really interesting so tell me more about that so that's that's really just kind of how it started and my interview style really became born out of that born out of me just wanting to have another conversation with another human being. Yes, I might I might admire that human being. I might think that that person is the coolest person on the planet. Um, I might have listened to all of their stuff my entire life and like it's unreal that I'm sitting across from them or whatever. And all of those things go on the shelf because ultimately it's just a person sitting in front of me that has the same fears that I do, the same anxieties that I do, the same insecurities that I do, um, the same joys and pains and everything. And so connecting on that that level has been really the core of my work. I um, mean, also wanting to connect um, what people who are, um, I don't want to say tasked with because it's something that they 
choose to do, but also we allow them to do it. We, we, you know, we are, we play such a big role that I also think it's left out of this is we are the ones who are telling these people, well, you are our champion of this, or you are our queen of, of self-care, all these things that we give these titles to the people. So because of that, I do think that there is a responsibility to engage them on what it is that makes, makes them happy, makes them sad, makes them angry, you know, just really like, it, it sounds basic, but you realize how basic it isn't when you see so many people just decide to ask the question of, well, tell me about the song and what inspired it. And that's really the question and that's it. And it's fine to ask that, but I'm also more interested in like, well, what do you do? Like when you don't have any inspiration, like what do you do? Because you're somebody who you're particularly famous or you have all of these things that we look to and like, you also are the same as us. And I know every day I don't wake up and feel like I can slay or whatever, you know, whatever it is. Like, I don't think that every day. And I know we all feel that way. So like, I, I want to ask that and I, I want to get into the, to the heart of that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Left me slightly. Speechless. Uh, yeah. I, I think it's, I think it's what connects me so much to you know, to, you know, just so our listeners know, um, you know, like I said to you, when we first just did a quick powwow before we jumped on today, like you were literally like a lightning bug in my life. Like you were my neighbor for, I can't even tell you how long, like from the time that I I saw your face and was like, oh, I want to know you mm-hmm. to the time that, you know, you moved on. I, um, it truly feels like a lightning bug moment, but it's something that, you know, you've just stuck out in my life and I've continued to read everything you, you write and everything. And, um, and I think it kind of just naturally to me kind of meets me where I'm at with my own curiosity about mm. people's human behavior and the human condition. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, to your point, I think that's what we all crave yeah. We all crave hearing the truth about people's experience inside of themselves. Right. And I also think too, you know, something that you know has always motivated me is I music and film and television and these things that for some people have appeared as like really lowbrow and like, oh my God, like, why don't you write about something? And it's just like, it's the one thing that connects us all regardless of anything, right? You know, especially when you think of a moment of, um, for instance, Succession just came back. We all, lots of us love to watch that show, but part of what's so interesting about that is a show like that, you can connect with somebody that you might not have anything else in common with. You might not have any other shared interest at all, but the two of you are now chatting every week about this show or, you know, there's somebody you work with and it's just like, uh, you know, I don't really know how to like get through to them. But then they show up at work one day and they're like wearing a T-shirt of this artist. And it's like, well, I love that person. And so, you know, so I just think there's a way in which like these these things that have um connected us in some ways and like it is part of a shared language for so long i had always felt that it was um 
looked down upon, honestly, to like have it as an interest to like want to write about. And so I went through that at like the beginning of my career of like, you know, friends in like journalism school that's just like, why don't you want to write about politics or like, you know, cover city stories or like cover things that matter. And I'm like, well, these things do matter because they matter to us and they matter to they 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 get us through things. They bring us comfort. I think the one thing about the last you know, year and a half that we've all really sat through with this pandemic is, oh, wow, if I actually did not have a Netflix or this music collection or all of these things or these books, my God, the books, you know, if I didn't have all this stuff, what would I have done sitting in the house? Um, and so I think it, it did help people kind of reconnect with ways in which they might have previously judged a lot of it. And so that's what I've always found so interesting about, um, you know, writing about culture. But it's part of why I always like to be really intersectional about how I write about culture, because I'm always trying to remind people that it's not just music. It's not just television. It's not just film. Um, these are things that help us understand who we are as people. These are things that help us understand how we treat each other. These are things that help us really get an idea of how we are separated. Um, all of it. And so that's what I really pour into. I mean, I think everything that I do, and I think that's probably some of what you pick up on, what a lot of people pick up on is the fact that I want to connect those dots. You know, when I wrote that first book, it was as much about how hip hop was seen as it was about this group. It was as much about, you know, what this city of LA did for this genre of music as it was about this group. It was, you know, there was so much about it that wasn't just, here's the story of these guys, because yes, I think telling a story about these men and these are these are black men coming up in a time when they were considered thugs they were considered you know um detrimental to the the fabric of america all these things that were said about this group and all this stuff that had been said about hip-hop um i wanted to do something that was a reminder of one what that looked like, what that felt like, how that was rooted in um, racism, how that was rooted in you know anti-blackness, how that was rooted in like the fact that we truly prefer to just like box in particular types of people. Um, and I wanted to I wanted to do something that showed one how terrible that was, but also really like how that told us so much about ourselves. And when you're talking about music, you know, that first book, that their whole rise and all of that, that's early 90s, late 80s. But it's all still the same as now. We still see it with the way that, you know, some of some artists are treated differently than others and all these things that keep coming up. And, you know, all of this stuff is really cyclical. And so that's what I thought was really interesting about writing a book um, about a group like that at the time that I did it in, you know, where it was like, in the Trump era and this moment that like these conversations around rap were happening again, they never stopped, but they kind of came up again in this in this other fresh way that no one actually realized was just a repeat of like the past. Um, so that was sort of the reason why, you know, with the next book, which is, you know, Whitney Houston, I wanted to do something completely different, which is like, oh, actually, let me just hold this mirror to all of us, because I think the ways in which that we have treated um, women in particular 
in pop music, I think is probably one of the most egregious things that we've done as people. Um, and it's, I think, wonderful that we're in this moment that we're in right now where there's all this reflection and this you know, reconsideration, but look at what it took. It took destroying so many women. It took some of them dying. It took, it took so much for us to sort of shift the way that we talk about women. And it's, and, and it's a shift, yes, but it's also not that much of a difference. I mean, look at the way that Lizzo was attacked for feeling comfortable and confident in her own skin, like that is not of any harm to anybody else. On the flip side of that, you know, you have a young woman like, you know, Billie Eilish, and then you have a whole, you know, group of the internet that's just like, well, now she decided to, to dye her blonde. So this much means something else now. And just the ways in which like women are constantly attacked um has always been something that has really been at the heart of like what i want to like get at because one i like to just remind people that we only do it to women we don't do it to men in the industry but also too like i just think there's a way in which like these women have been they've meant so much to us in ways that i don't think we've always um respected or honored. I think we can acknowledge it, but I don't think that we ever really take that step back, um, which is why, you know, I, I recently wrote a piece on, you know, Britney Spears and like my worries about how that's possibly could go once she is free of this conservatorship. And I think some of it is like, I remember the ways in which we show up and the ways in which we don't show up. And so, so much of like where my motivation is now as a writer is like just writing about it and like, holding us accountable, holding myself accountable. You know, that's that's another part too, is I think that like, you know, where my responsibility lies is like, if we're as many people that loves the, the, the splashy stuff on top and like, yes, I think it's cool and it's incredible. And like five-year-old me still freaks out about the fact that like, I've gone to the Grammys 10 times now, you know, I've gone to all these award shows that I, you know, watched on TV and all of that stuff is really, really, really great. But at the center of it is really me trying to constantly, you know, move our culture forward, but also hold us accountable for the ways in which that we fail the people who are um, helping define our culture and also, you know, shape our lives, you know, with their art. And I think there's a way in which like, I am more interested in exploring that than I am being first to write about a person or um, having this really big, huge cover from this on this publication for this artist. All those things are really, really, really great. But if it's not about, you know, having real honest conversations with us or moving us forward or any of it, then I I don't really want to do it anymore. So, you know, I've been in this, I've been in this moment right now in the last couple of years where like my writing has just shifted because like I feel a different pull. You know, I don't want to do a lot of the stuff that like I had to do for so long in my career because like one, I'm tired, but also two, like I just it doesn't feel particularly important to me. It doesn't actually move me at all. Um, and that really matters to me now. Yes. Yes. It sounds to me like what you are seeing is, and what you have seen, even through like, probably from when you were tiny, which we'll get there. I want to talk more about that too, but from when you were tiny and then even through, like, like you said, in journalism school, like you can, you have known on an, 
in a deep way, even probably before your intellect caught up, but you have known really spiritually speaking, that it's important to recognize the connective tissue between us and artists and the culture that gets created and how, I mean, I'm, I'm essentially just repeating what you just said, but seeing how all of that, we truly, we are the ones that put these folks on these pedestals really Mm -hmm. truly they show up with their gift right and then we put them somewhere yes we slap (laughs) a label right then we slap a label on them and the second that they have a human experience of wanting to shift and grow and change which you cannot you can't escape it as a human yeah no you can't growth and change is inherent. Mm-hmm. So it's like the more that we recognize that, the more we could there could be some room around allowing people to have their experience and come off of the fucking pedestal if they need. Yeah. You know, and it's yeah. to me what I've and I even read I I'm I'm up to date on your essays and I read the Britney one and you know and it's it's that was that's part of what I love so much about what you're talking about is that it, yes, we're looking at what is it that we are doing in relationship to the artist, but also you're making us get self-reflective on what have we done to put this person here. Mm-hmm. And now it is our responsibility to start looking at that. So that mm-hmm. way we can, you know, look at the the how we truly all are just stitches in fabric of this life yeah 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 (laughs) (laughs) no that's it and that's and that's and that's really and that's really it and i think so much of that gets lost especially now this time that we're in now where our appetite for it is just that we're all just so in, you know we were insatiable especially now that we have um twitter and instagram and like we see images and we hear things you know we see it all day long and i think there's a there's a part of us that has kind of forgotten the human element of it because you know i mean i have lots of different theories but i think one of it is just like we've become so used to the way that all of it works. We're so used to like, you know, putting them on the pedestal and then that second at something in their human experience happens that is for us to judge. It's like, ah, we jump at the chance because, you know, I do think just like culturally as people, like that excites us. It excites us to see downfalls. It excites us to see um, someone else struggling, especially people that we perceive to be doing better than us, um, because it allows us to kind of, you know, live the fantasy of like, well, yeah, you know, it's actually not, it must not be so good, you know, it must not be a great thing, you know, I think about, you know, some of these stories that become like, humongous things where it's just like, oh, we spent like a couple of weeks, like, talking about whether or not these like celebrities are like still in a relationship, you know, just like these things that I think we do that we've always done. I mean, it's just part of like celebrity culture, which has always, you know, intrigued me, but it has reached a place now where sometimes it feels like 
oh, we're so desensitized to these people as like actual humans that like we don't even realize our role in it. We don't realize that like us gawking, us judging, us making comments, all this stuff adds to it. And then it's just like, we lose them or they quit or whatever. And, you know, we poke them with the stick and it's like, well, why can't you, you can't take more? Like, this is part of it. You know, I love seeing those comments. I was, I was watching, I was watching a thing yesterday. Um, Maroon 5 had a show and Adam Levine was, you know, he's singing and a woman jumped on stage and grabbed him and he had a reaction to it. And, you know, it was TikTok. Some, someone, you know, did a stitch response and the response is like, oh, this person who pays your bills and, you know, puts food in your mouth, wants to hug you and this is your reaction. And it's like, actually, that, that's so unfair. Like, it's actually abuse. And like, I hate to say it, but like your $125 that you spent on that show didn't actually put the food in, in their mouths, didn't actually pay their bill. And you are one of hundreds of people at a thousands of people at a show. And what you paid for is to see them sing songs. That's it. You're not owed anything else. And I and, and so much of the culture that we have is like, these people owe us everything because we put them on these pedestals. And it's like, well, actually, they don't. All they actually owe us, you know, in, in air quotes, really, is like their art. That's it. They don't owe us an explanation when something in their personal life goes away that we're like, well, what's going on there? They they don't owe us that. They don't owe us any more of themselves. They don't they don't owe you the picture when you see them at the airport or anywhere. They don't owe you it at all. And so, you know, I know I speak a, a so much of like where my reactions come of this is because, yeah, I've had the privilege of like being around these people in private and like having those conversations and watching them die inside almost when it's just like, okay, yeah. So like now I have to go do this thing and like, I don't actually want to, but it's part of it. And like, I can, you know, so I can really, I have a lot of empathy for a lot of it because so much of what I find interesting about the privilege that I have as a writer is you get to see these moments and sometimes you can't do anything with it. You know, sometimes you can put it in a story, but oftentimes like, it's just a moment that you share with a person that is another human. And that's a conversation that the two of you have as humans. And then there is the understanding, you know, from one human to another of like, hey, you know, can this be a moment with just us? And it's like, sure you know and it and it does help me understand people so if there's you know if there's things that i can't write but it's helped me understand you know why someone is maybe no longer active on social media or why someone um doesn't travel a particular kind of way anymore or why someone doesn't agree to particular things anymore because they've have trauma around it they might not be ready to talk about it they might not ever actually talk about it, but they have trauma around it. And so it it brings another level of understanding. And so that's some of the things that I've been like really, really privileged into like having some insight, which does inform kind of the way that I write. It informs, you know, a decision that I made a really long time ago was, you know, my orientation around people's personal lives, art, the, the personal lives of artists. Um, and it's really challenging when you deal with folks who 
record music because music is such a personal thing. It all is, but there's a relationship that we have with music, right? Where it is our soundtrack. It, these songs become what we attach our happiness to, our joy to, our grief to, our everything to. And so I, there are moments where it's like, okay, I do have this curiosity about someone's personal life, and so I'm going to ask them. But then I am faced with moments where it is, I know it's in the music, so I'm going to ask you specifically what, as it relates to the music. But there are people who may put in the music, may not, but they don't want to talk about it at all. And then you have to have a conversation with yourself of, well, what is it that I want to know about this person's personal life that they have made the decision that it is off the table? You know, and I think that is probably one of the most um, human things that you have to deal with because I see so many of my peers sometimes just get in trouble because they're like, fuck it. You're not going to tell me I can't ask about this or that or that. And I get that. And I've had those moments where I've had to be like, well, sorry, I've got to ask you. The only reason I have to ask you is because it's all in the news or because, you know, you know, there's these moments where it's like, or you don't got in trouble, you know, with the law or something that happens. So it's like, I, you know, these things I have to now ask, but I do recognize how often some people are doing that only because they believe that this person owes them and owes us every part of themselves. And I have such a hard time with that. You know, I have such a hard time with that. And I've been in this industry long enough to like realize like, oh, there was a point in my life and it was a part of my life that, you know, you knew me in as well, where it was, oh my gosh, like, because I have gone out, you know, to an event with the person I was with, now there's all these people who feel like they can now know this part of my life and they now feel entitled to knowing it. And so that came up so much. And then it was like, oh no, I just kind of want to be a writer. Um, and I don't, I don't, I don't want you to like, know everything you know like i want to have some level of like something for myself because i had talked to a particular artist and we had done it did this really big story and i remember that was one of the things that like we had talked about in our talks before we were like on the record of like they were actually giving me advice and was like you should have something for yourself because everybody should and when you are someone who shares your art, your talents, or whatever you want to call it, to the world, it does create this thing with people who feel like, okay, well, what about this? Or what about this? And so that, like, when I got that advice, I, I really took it to heart because I was in a situation where, you know, my work life was challenging, my personal life was challenging in all facets. And so all I, all I had was the work. And so I didn't want any time I showed up with the work to then have to like deal with all of the other things, you know, so that I started to really pull back in so many ways. And it wasn't a thing to anybody or anything, but it was, I need to have this one thing because everything else no longer feels mine. Yeah. I didn't, I woke up and I realized I didn't have anything for myself. Like everything had been on display. It was my doing. You know, but everything had been on display and I really had to like check myself to be like, you have to have something because it can't just be 
the work before it's public is yours. That can't be that can't be the only thing that's yours. You know, like that and that was what it was for a while. And I was like, that's actually pretty sad. <laughs> I felt really sad about that. So I, you know, I started to change my life around in so many ways. And that is then improved the work because I can separate it. It's all in different little boxes now. That's fantastic. And so what I'm hearing is, is it's almost like you, you got a, a deeper sense of what is personal and what is private. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like personal and private are two very different things. Yeah. You know, and it's kind of like, that's what that, the artist who kind of, you know, helped you kind of see that about yourself. It's like, you know, I've, I've kind of woken up to that for myself about, you know, like how much do I share? So that way folks feel uh, related to, or that there's, you know, it's like, you know, in, in the work that I'm doing, it's, it, it brings people so much comfort when you normalize things that, yes, you know, that they think is like so unique to them and that there's something wrong with them. This one thing. And so, so anyway, so it's like, I I've had to kind of find that, that very fine line myself of like, what do I want to keep private versus share that is still personal, but it's Mm -hmm. not private. Um, so I want to go, I want to go back a little bit. Um, we launched right into the thick of your, of where you are now, but where does it, where, so tell us a little bit about how did you use, you mentioned that you were, you know, five years old when you, when you started to get curious. So kind of start at the beginning, like, and you, you know, whatever bubbles up that you want to share, but when did it hit you and, and where were you living and what was your experience growing up that with all, you know, that, kind of helped shape you and in, in what you what you do now? Yeah, um, you know, I grew up in Cincinnati. Um, my grandfather was really into the news, but it was, you know, he was, he was someone with very strong opinions. So his, his feelings toward the news was, and it's funny now because, you know, all these years later, but his feelings, you know, then was, this is all fake. You know, this is none of this is real. Everything at there, and I was like, no. You know, so it was like me kind of like having a little bit of lip and a little bit of sass, which anybody who knows me is not hard to believe. Um, <laughs> you know, and so my grandfather he challenged me, and so he would bring me Time and Newsweek and the Daily Newspaper, Cincinnati Enquirer, and he'd bring it to me all the time and make me read everything cover to cover, and then he would make me watch the news. And, you know, I started really, the, we started having these debates about just what was happening um, in current events. And some of it was me like arguing with him of like, well, it can't, it can't be fake because like I saw it here and I read it here. And he's like, what's the difference between those two? So then it really became about making me understand and see that like, yes, the six o'clock news and the 10 o'clock news is going to have a very different tone than what's going to be in the city paper. You know, so once I had that awareness, I was just really interested in I was really. And then I found that you could like get paid to do it. And that was like a whole other like thing to me that didn't feel real. But, you know, the funny thing about it was I was also the kid who. I 
loved R&B music. I loved, you know, watching everything on TV. I loved it all. I knew everything. I was like an encyclopedia for pop culture. And he did not care. He was not interested. Um, it got, it used to be the thing where it was like, if I got sick and I stayed home from school, that was when he would go and get me like pop culture magazines. You know, that was like his treat. Like if I was out sick or if I got like straight A's, you know, so like that was when he would do it. Um, but other than that, it was like, here's Newsweek, here's Time, here's Daily Paper. I mean, he had every single magazine subscription like possible. Um, but then it was just like, you know, at a certain point, I remember, um, you know, like growing up, this was still, you know, late 80s, early 90s. So it was like Black Beat Magazine, Right On, um, Word Up, you know, these these yes. were the mags. Um, and then, of course, it was like the first time I like got a Rolling Stone in my hand. Oh, my goodness. The first time I saw Spin Magazine, you know, when I started to see all of these um, cultural magazines, but it was music and it was like the entire thing is about the music that I like. And so that felt so far out of my like actual understanding of life because these are all things I watched all this stuff on TV. I never thought that it was like possible, but I just started to write. I was the person who would ask all the questions and like, you know, I was writing. I remember like the eighth grade, um, a teacher really understood. She really saw that this was like a passion. So she started to just give me like prompts. And like the first big thing I did was I hand wrote a book. <laughs> and it was like, you know, when I say book, it was probably like 80 pages, but like it was 80 handwritten pages. Yes. So, you know, an eighth grader, that was a book. That's huge. Um, you know, and I just, I just remember just how all of these people in my tribe really saw that this was what I wanted and whatever they could do, you know, and it was, it was hard in Cincinnati where like, you don't get any of these things. There was no, um, there was no program if you wanted to like learn journalism. So I think the first thing I ever did was like yearbook. Um, but then I went to um, a performing arts high school. So that was the first time I was able to like study writing and there's still no journalism. So I learned how to write plays. I learned how to write poetry um, and fiction. And I was also doing like technical theater. Like I just knew like I was going to do one of these things. And I went to OSU um, and I majored in both. But freshman year, I was so eager to start that I, <laughs> I laugh now, but I marched into the college newspaper. They usually didn't have, you didn't like write for the college paper until like your junior year, but I marched in there like first quarter of my freshman year. And I was like, I need to be on staff. And they're just like, um, whatever. And I was <laughs> like, no, I need to be on staff. Like this is all I want to do. And I hadn't even taken like an intro journalism course yet. And they were just like, uh, well, no, but like, what if you just like, like wrote something? And so I got an assignment and I don't recall what it was. It was, it was definitely, it was either, it was either a, a, an album review or a film review. It was something small of that nature. I did it. They loved it. And they were just like, you could just keep writing. Um, so by the end of my soft, by the end of my freshman year, I was 
the arts editor of the college publication. <laughs> um, and then I worked my way up. I was the first black um, editor in chief of that paper. Oh. Um, mind you, I never got around to taking an intro class where you would then write for the paper. Like I had to do it as like a, um, they like made some arrangement for me because I had been on staff for like oh, three years at that it. point. So it was just kind of like ridiculous that I hadn't done it. <laughs> um, but I, was the student who I applied for every single internship. If it was journalism, I applied. It didn't matter what it was. So I traveled to like DC and like did this like political um, journalism, like um, exploration trip, which was like very cool. I knew I didn't want to do it, but I wanted to network as much as possible. So I joined everything. I joined, you know, National Association of Black Journalists, like nationally. Then there wasn't one at the, at, you know, the school that I was at. So I started one. Yes. <laughs> so it was just like, I, I just kept doing as much as possible. I, so yeah, I was interning. Um, I was, I mean, it, it all feels like a blur now because I realized like I didn't, I didn't party in college until senior year because senior year I, applied to a bunch of different internships. And I was ready at that point. I was, I'm going to get a big one because I've already been at the small paper. First paper I was at, I was the only black person at the, on staff. And like that editor at the time on my weekend shift sent me to a civil war reenactment and just oh. did not think at all that there might possibly be a situation. And there was a situation <laughs> and, you know, it just, I was young and I had no idea how to navigate these things. But that was just like how I was learning. I was learning because I wanted it so badly. Um, so yeah, senior year, I applied to a bunch of different places. Literally my last stamp, I kid you not, this is why for me, it was such a big lesson in fate. But my last stamp was I had a packet and the only place I hadn't applied to was the LA Times. And I did not even think that it was something that I should do, but I was really i just knew i wanted i wanted something big i was seeing i was dating a guy at the time and he was moving to boston for um his masters and i i mean i had no interest in going to boston but i knew that i loved him and so like his mom told me that we were moving to boston and i was like oh i don't <laughs> think i'm moving but she's like, no, y'all move. And I was like, okay. And like, I was like, this is going to be the man I'm going to marry. So of course I'm going to go to Boston. So my, all my eggs in my basket was for like the Boston Globe, the Boston Herald. I had done this like really great internship with the New York Times where it's like a, it's a small fellowship that you do. And you're, for the one that I was in, it's in New Orleans. And so I, you know, I was getting this, just this great experience. And so I was like, this is my time. I sat down with the the editor at the Boston Globe, and I was like, I'm, this last internship, I'm about to be at the Globe. I had already planned it out. I just knew it. And it was a quick rejection. And I was like, okay, well, that's awkward. And then every other paper in Boston rejected me. And I was like, okay, well, this is awkward. And then I got a call from an old um, mentor who was at a previous paper that I interned at. And she was like, you know, I just want you to know that you know you're going to be going to LA. And I was like, no, I'm not. And she's like, yes, you are. Like, I've talked, I've talked to the editor. Like, they love you. They're going to offer you this internship. You cannot tell them that I told you. And I was like, you're like lying to me right now. She's like, no, 
like, this is what you're going to be doing. And she's like, have you decided? And I was like, I've been getting all these rejections. There's just no way. Yeah. And she's like, no, that's, this is going to be happening. And like two hours later, he called me for, and LA, offered, Times. for LA Times and offered it to me. And then he told me, he'd asked me if I had planned on applying. They have a fellowship. That's a six month fellowship. And he's like, you would get it if you applied. And I was just like blown away by this, mostly because like the story that got me the gig of an intern was I did a three part. So for the the class that I was supposed to do in order to (laughs) write for the paper that I now had to do as like an independent studies because I had already done every job at the paper. (laughs) Um, So like, you know, the the. the advisor, he just made us do like, here's one big, like you do one series of things for the whole quarter. You're going to spend the whole quarter on this story. And I had gotten this like really interesting idea because when you were, so at the paper, you worked really closely with the, the the advertising staff, like those students, like we saw them. And so one of the students, we were just, you know, talking and he's like, have you noticed that like, there's this guy looking for people to do porn and he keeps advertising in the paper. And I was like, no, I, I don't, I don't read the advertisements in the paper at all. I don't pay any attention to them. They're laid out on the page before when we get the pages, I don't see them. So he like shows me and I'm like, oh, so I email the guy and I ask him like, what's this about? And he just like straight up tells me. And so then I find out that like a bunch of students were like paying their bills by doing porn. And I thought it was interesting. I, it was nothing, it was nothing rooted in shame other than the fact that he was targeting um, straight students and this was um, a gay website. And that I thought was really interesting. Like the whole gay for pay thing had been like kind of a new term that was like being circulated. And so I ended up doing this like three part series on it and like, you know, now it's weird because, you know, Ron Jeremy is what he's got a lot of cases now, but like Ron Jeremy talked to me, like all these like really huge porn stars talked to me for this thing and like told me about the difference in money and like, all. so it was just a really interesting, quirky story, but it was a three-part thing. And this editor, he saw it. It was like, I, I was proud of it, but it was definitely at the back of my packet when I sent the stuff in because I was just like, it's three stories about porn and I'm a college student and I didn't know how it would be taken. And he was just like, I just couldn't believe that a college student had this story, but also that you found something so weird at the paper that you were working at. And I was like, yeah, you know? And and so he, from there was like, if you want this fellowship, you will have it. He still made me apply, but he was like, do it. So I at least knew I was coming to LA with, nine months of employment and like possibly was going to be hired at the end of it. Maybe not, but I at least knew I had nine months. So for somebody who had just gotten 23 rejections, (laughs) like 23 rejections, I was just like, I'm going to go do this. And so, you know, the relationship didn't continue because I wasn't going to move there. And that was, I mean, it's fine now, but you know, obviously, you know, 20 year old me was crushed, but like I moved out here. I knew that I had nine months and I was like, I hope I don't fuck this up, but I ended up working there for 10 years um, on the music team and all of these things that just was like, 
not at all part of what I thought was ever going to happen. I knew that I wanted to write about music and entertainment at a major publication, a major newspaper. I was thinking Chicago because I didn't really want to leave the Midwest, all like that. You know, maybe Boston if that would have worked out. But I never thought L.A. I never thought I didn't definitely wasn't thinking New York, but I definitely didn't think L.A. The only other time I had been to L.A. was, again, as I mentioned, I applied for everything that came my way. There was a Rolling Stone reality show that they did where they were looking for people to be contributing editors. And it was a competition show. And I made it all the way to the last round. And so that was the first time I was like in L.A. was to like come interview it's like really stone gig um, that I didn't get because they were like, you're too young. And so like, I wasn't drinking age. So they were just like, that's oh going to be God. a challenge. <laughs> but it was like, for me, it was such a, just a confidence booster because it was one of those moments of like, take a chance on yourself and keep doing it and somebody will. And so to see a place of that stature, take a chance on me, I was like, I, I have to go like I am terrified, but I have to go. And I came out here not I wasn't on the music team. I it, that was the thing that I wanted to get to eventually. But they told me up front, like, it's going to be hard. And so I started on the Metro desk. So I was right. You know, that was my background. I had done all this because I grew up with my grandfather giving me all these like, you know, newspapers and stuff like that. So I knew how to like write that kind of stuff. I knew how to write about a building burning down or a shooting or, you know, somebody getting hit by a car or whatever. And that's what I did for the first like three or four months at the paper. And then wow. I um, started bouncing around and they all saw that I had this interest in entertainment stuff. So I was doing a mix of things and then I got hired um, full time. I still wasn't on the music team, but I was at least allowed to write about general entertainment. And so that was enough for me because I was like, yes, awesome. And then what I just had done enough at some point and they moved me to the music team. And then that's where I was for not it was at that point. It was like nine and a half years. That's incredible. Yeah. An absolute dream. So can you can you share a little bit? Um, can you share a little bit about what you you said? You said it was your first kind of lesson in fate. Yeah. And so can you share a little bit about what has your experience been about, um, you know, it's like we always can connect the dots looking backwards mm-hmm. and can't do it looking forwards because right. that doesn't exist yet. But um, share a little bit about what is it, what has it been like for you to um, really listen to your instincts and what that has looked like in your life even in in and hey let me also say because we all have it when we have an instinct and we don't listen to it yeah and, and we can see it once we're past the time of like oh you know but what 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 is your experience whatever bubbles up for you with that question of like you know what is mm. what has your experience been like with following your instincts and and I mean, you know, and on one on one end of it, it's it has never stood me wrong on a story. Like, even if the story doesn't 
do what I wanted it to do, or if it doesn't resonate the way that I wanted it to resonate or anything like that. When I follow my instinct, like that has been really probably my biggest guiding force as it relates to my writing. Um, where it was hard for me to do it was connecting it with actual like career strategy and also life strategy, but definitely career <laughs> strategy um, in the way of like, okay, you know, I got to, I got to a crossroad where I had been, you know, doing it for a while and I had an opportunity and it was, you know, it would have forced me to leave. And I wasn't, I wasn't ready to leave the paper. I, I didn't, I, I wanted to do lots of other things there. And so I turned it down and, you know, ultimately it then, I stayed longer than I should have is like, was the lesson that I learned in that and like not taking that chance in a particular way because I wasn't really thinking um, strategy as much because I was only ever thinking of the passion. I was only ever thinking of the work. I was only ever thinking of that boy who grew up, who wanted to do this, who now gets to do it. And so like, no matter how funky things get, that was enough. It was enough for a very long time, you know, because I just thought about, you know, that kid who would have never ever imagined being able to do a quarter of the stuff that I then did in the first couple of years. And it just kept feeling like, oh, wow, like I just kept having that moment over and over and over. So I, I, it created this wall of, you know, you it was a wall of fear. But I thought it was a practical thing of, well, you would be stupid to leave. You know what I mean? I just kept I kept yes. thinking of it that way. Um, and then when the opportunity with the first book came, I had to make a decision of, you know, this thing that I've always wanted to do, I've all, always wanted to do, um, came around. It was going to require me to stretch myself in a way that I just was not ready for. I felt, I felt I wasn't ready for, but I was like, you have to do this. You have to do this thing for yourself, no matter if it breaks you. And it did. That first book completely broke me. Um, and so, my God, so many ways. I mean, you know, and it's, and it's funny, like having the conversation with someone who we shared community and we lived in the same complex and just like, the hours that I would spend, you know, I would come home from work. I would take an hour, two hours and like have a meal, you know, hang out, you know, with my partner at the time. And then I would go to work and I wouldn't stop until four o'clock in the morning. And I would have a couple hours of sleep and then I would go drag myself down to the office and like just on fumes. You know, and I did that for months. I couldn't believe, I mean, I just couldn't believe it. Um, and so much of what I saw was, okay, well, I'm doing this for the passion, you know? And so just like getting through that entire thing, it was absolute hell. I gained so much weight. I didn't really have a sleep system anymore. Um, <laughs> I was like, it was... To, to this day still a blur, you know, to me, like I just 
can't even, I don't even know how um, some of it happened. Um, but after it, I was like, I did this thing and I came out from the other side of it. And I knew that I couldn't make any more decisions that wasn't following my instinct in a particular kind of way. And so when I saw myself really quickly in a situation right after, um, because the book did not do what I wanted it to do, you know, it, it was not the experience I wanted in any particular way, it then just created this trauma. And I put so much into that. I, I put, you know, I started thinking of, well, if I would have did this instead, or if I would have did this, you know, I, all I did was play that loop in my head. And so I eventually reached a place where I was like, I actually have to make harder decisions about what I want, about what I need um, as a writer, as a person, as, a um, as everything. Yes. And that is when I started to notice, ah, I've cracked the code because I'm following not just my instincts, but I'm choosing myself. And that was a really different thing for me. That was not something that I really knew ever how to do. I was always in service of so many other people and so many other people's expectations um, and desires for me that I lost myself in such a way that like I worked really hard to find. I worked really hard to find it, but finding him meant like, oh, you actually hate this job, so quit. Oh, you actually dislike being around these people. Don't be around them anymore. You know, you actually don't, you know, you, you don't want this or this or this thing. So why are you still allowing it? Um, and so once I started choosing, you know, once I started choosing my instincts in those particular ways, it made everything else, even when it was hard, it was easier to get through or it was easier to do because now it's just, it's hard because the work is hard. It's not hard because I'm also trying to deal with the fact that I'm doing something I don't want to do, or I'm doing something that doesn't make me happy, or I'm doing something that doesn't actually fill me with any level of joy or fulfillment or anything. Like I'm just doing it because I feel an obligation or because I don't want to disappoint somebody or I don't want to hear the words of, oh, you know, oh, you just changed so much. You know, these things that like were triggers for me at one point is like, it's fine because like, yes, I'm sorry that I'm not the same person that I was eight years ago, but I also recognize that part of what you were struggling with is that person eight years ago allowed you to use them or allowed you to do these things to them. And so now you're seeing a new person who does not allow that and you don't know how to engage that. Or you thought, oh, there was, I just thought, and it's like, no, I, I get it. And, and I don't take any of that personal, um, which also took a lot of work to do where it's like, you don't take these things personal, but yeah, it was making those decisions. So that's what makes everything about this next book um it's night and day it's a complete different experience it's a complete different feeling it's a complete different everything i mean you know someone asked me the other night and was like oh yeah you know it's just yeah this happened with the first one i was like no it didn't and i appreciate that you think that it did only because 
you never really saw me on any platform being like, well, this happened or this happened or all of these things happened. I mean, you know, you were at my, you know, the release event for the first book and like no one would have known that like that entire thing was pulled off by like me and the person I was with at the time because like the publicist at the publisher abandoned me, you know what I mean? And like, did not return an email, did not return a call, did nothing, you know, like at all. And that was so painful in a way that I couldn't think I could overcome. But I also was like, no, I need to, I want to be happy about this work that I've done that I killed myself to do. And so I tried so much to think about that and that only. But yeah, it, it, it did create a trauma that lingered that like I haven't fully gotten through. I mean, I've been in three years of therapy that has like helped, <laughs> but it's definitely, it's definitely something that at least where I feel now about my work and myself is just so much different because I'm in such a different place because I'm ultimately just following my gut every single time and not second guessing, which is really hard as like a very sensitive Libra. <laughs> to make the decision to like only do that and not overthink it. I mean, I still overthink it, but it's still ultimately just choose, you know, the instinct. Yes. Well, and it sounds to me like, you know, as you were kind of in that transitionary period too, as you were still working at the paper and writing your first book that you were, like you were saying, I was kind of sticking with it in service to others and in service to other people's desires. But what I'm kind of linking together too, is that, you know, like you said, it's like, you were almost, you were, you were almost staying there in service to the desires of the five-year-old Garrick. Yeah. And and it's what we do. It's like, we, 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 you know, we, we have these ideas about how things are going to go and, you know, I think I said it earlier, it's like change and growth literally is inherent in who you, who we are as human beings. We Mm -hmm. we could not be involved with our brains and we still evolve because you just can't help it. Yes. You know, because we, we are information gatherers, you know, about ourselves, about life, what we're looking at, what we're experiencing. So by nature, without any effort, we do evolve. Mm. So what gets us caught up though, is that you have this idea that's been with you for, you know, I don't know where we were on the timeline, but let's say from five years old to when you, you know, the first, first few years into the times, you know, it's like you have this idea in your mind about who you are and what you're doing and how you are literally living out those dreams. Right. And we get so married to that idea. Married. that oh my not, goodness. Yeah. That married not, to it. Married. Had no clue of who you could possibly be without it. Like yes. at all. Like not one clue. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know, and it's, and it, and the, you know, there's beautiful stuff with that, but the downfall of it or like the, you know, the, um, the curse <laughs> is that you're not present with your own evolution that's happening underneath. Yeah. You know, and I think that's to, so to me, it's like that, that first book, parental discretion is advised that period of your life looks to me like a time in your life when you were absolutely, you know, your mind was married to this old idea and your soul was just pulling you forward. 
Come on now. I just have like chills all over. <laughs> <laughs> I just got chills all over because it's a million percent accurate. That's it. That's what it was. Yeah. You know, and feeling that and going through that. Um, God, it just woke up so much stuff in me. Yes. It really did to the point where I, oh my God, I was like, you know, I rarely say this, but like, I haven't never even read that book again because it's so wrapped in trauma. Um, yeah. You know, it's when I get asked about it or I do these interviews still and it's like, you know, it, fi- it, you know, it finds its way. And a lot of it is all attached not to the work itself because I'm so proud of it. I'm so proud of it. I have days where I can't believe I did it. Um, But I also have days where I'm like, no, I know I did it, you know, because I still have (laughs) the wounds (laughs) inside, but it's hard for me to open it and look at it and read it because it is such a reminder of a person who lost themselves because they really felt like they had no power of their own life, of their talent, of all the stuff they had worked toward, any of it. They, they just, I'm so reminded of that period in my life only because um, it was the only time in my life as an adult where nothing felt like it was my own or in my control or even going right. You know, it was like this moment of just like struggling with family, struggling with home life, struggling with work. And like, yeah, my friends were cool. You know what I mean? And like, you know, you met them, like my friends were cool and I, and I had, and I have great community. I have a great tribe. But so much of what I then was doing when I realized it, because I've had to have so many of these conversations, was the levels of which I was suffering in silence and just putting on a mask. And I didn't really recognize it until, you know, a really good friend was like, I can see how unhappy you are. I can feel how unhappy you are and the performance that you're doing because you're so worried about disappointing people. You know, that the other thing I talked about earlier about like wanting something that's for me was I, I was going, I was going through an uncoupling, um, you know, mm-hmm. and I was like getting, I was going out and like hanging out and everywhere I went, it was people who I'm, not close with in any particular kind of way, have no friendship with. They're asking me about a person I'm not in a relationship with. And so having to like watch their face over and over and over, oh, well, what happened in this thing? And it's like, I don't, I don't want to like relive a thing at all, but because I have allowed so many people to have a level of access into me and into my life, you feel privy to just really casually ask me that at some like industry event over an open bar. And I was like, I just was trying to have a cocktail tonight, you know? And it's just like, I don't want to like have to do that. And then I started to realize, you know, a part of myself that had moved on was able to, because I had been performing for so long. 
And I had had a different orientation around what this was to where everyone else was like, oh my God, this whole thing has happened in your life. And I didn't know this. And I realized like, oh yeah, because privately it had been done a year ago, you know? And it just is like the circumstances of, you know, being in relationships with adults and all these things that we learn that like, it's not easy in any way. So like, yes, I am not walking around and like hating this person, nor are we on, you know, social media being like, this thing happened, here's this announcement. And like, I cringe inside when I see people do that. Cause it's like, why are you telling me on Instagram? Yeah. You know, I don't actually need to know, you know? Um, and so I, but it, it was part of me like realizing just like how, how much I was trying to perform a level of happiness because I was living a life that again, that five-year-old, six-year-old, seven-year-old would have never believed half of it, yes. a quarter of it, let yeah. alone a hundred percent of it. You know, it just never felt possible. And so that was the moments where I, I, I would allow the guilt to come in, all these things. And it's like, you have to stop because the other side of that is you should actually really honor that kid who has gone through so much already in life by also just being like, hey, I'm going to put you first because we've worked hard in order to be able to do the things that we do now. We worked hard enough to be able to say, I don't actually want to do that anymore, or I don't want to do this anymore, or I'm only doing this now, or you know, I'm going to leave a place because I want to make sure that when I'm working on this book that means so much to me that I have just spent five years dreaming about, I want to show up for that a hundred percent Yeah. every time. I don't want to be trying to do that and going to a place and like having to show up and like be a team player and all these things that like, yes, you should still do, but I knew that I couldn't do it. And I didn't want to, because I wanted to give this thing every piece of me, all of it, 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 all of it. And, and nothing less. Yes. Truly nothing less. And I did. And the only reason I was able to do that was because I made decisions in my life to allow that to happen. I also had the support in my life to be able to do that. You know, I, I had someone who was like, you want this to be a certain thing. And so I'm not trying to tell you what you got to do, but I'm telling you what I know that you know you need to do. And that's a very different thing Yes. from someone that's like and it's not a, it's nothing against any particular person in my life but it's a really big difference in support when someone shows up for you in that way and says that thing to you as opposed to well you know yeah you know if you leave like what are people gonna think and like oh, is it the right time or oh maybe you should do it next year or, oh maybe you should just wait or oh like what happened? you know so I, I went through all of that you know, and I felt really great. And then it was like, you know, the next moment of like regret was like, not regret, because that's such a strong word and it's not an accurate word. But I had a moment of, oh, did I make the right call when like, you know, I left and then two months later, it's like, oh, it's a pandemic and like the world <laughs> is shut down and like there is no work and there is nothing. And so 
I had to have, I had to really sit and like deal with that person that comes out because he's in the back of my head. That's just like, you fucked up. And like, maybe you shouldn't have tried to pick yourself first, or maybe you shouldn't have tried to do this. And maybe you should have, you should have waited. You could, you know, all these things that is just so ridiculous because like, how was I supposed to know that the world was about to go what it was going through? But that was where my brain took me because I lived in so much guilt for choosing myself in my own career. Yeah. It just is, it's, it's the weirdest thing. And it's, you know, it's something that is still discussed on a regular basis. With right. <laughs> oh, well, honestly, Garrick, but it's not weird. I mean, that's yeah. the theme of my work is waking people up to being able to see their mind objectively. Mm-hmm. Because the second that you do, the more you realize, like, like you had mentioned earlier, you said, um, you had said how you had lost your power in the process of writing the first book. Right. And I'll be honest with you, Garrick, from where I'm sitting, you were actually sitting in the middle of your power. You were just distracted. Ooh. Yeah. I mean, I. Cause that's what happens, right? We get married yeah. to that in our mind. It's and so, we're so married. Distracted. So we're so just attached. Yeah. yeah. You know, whereas now what you're saying about, you know, you know, you're, you're the person in your life that is, that is saying like, Hey, this is what I'm seeing for you that you might want to consider. Right. All that is, is that that's that person giving you permission to listen to your truth, to listen to your truth. Yeah. You know, and it's, and, and the more that you see that for yourself, the more that you'll begin more consistently to Mm -hmm. give yourself the permission to listen to your truth, you know, despite how loud it gets in your mind, you know, despite it, it, because it's, it's, it's always going to do what it, what it does, which Mm -hmm. is just throw a bunch of stuff at you all the time, right? All the time, (laughs) you know? And like one of my favorite sayings that I say to folks is, it's like, we always go to this graveyard of our dead thoughts looking for a life. Mm. And that's not where aliveness Mm. comes from, right? It's from the truth of who you are and what comes from there. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's a heavy one because it's so, it's so, it's so real in so many ways that I really do believe um, if I hadn't discovered that, and I don't do this often, but I try to think about every now and then, like when I'm in a moment of like real, like just deep gratitude where I just think like what it would have all looked like if I just kept sitting in fear and kept just like, making these decisions based off of what was happening around me as opposed to what was happening within my head and within my heart and like what would that have looked like and like i know i wouldn't have this book coming i know i wouldn't have been able to write any of the things that i've written in the last two years i know that i would not feel as great about myself as a person let alone you know how i feel about myself as a writer or whatever, but I just want to feel good about myself. And really having to like come to grips with that part where it was like, yeah, I was strongly as proud as I was of of of, of all of the work that I did in that in that phase of my life. There's still a part where it's just like, gosh, if I never, if I if I didn't if I didn't stop listening to that, what would that have looked like? You know, and then I but I also 
I see so many examples of what that would have looked like. You know what I mean? I have so many, so many, you know, really good peers where it's just like, you are not doing this for yourself. Yeah. You're doing it because you feel if you let it go, then people will forget you. Or if you let it go, you won't get to do anything else anywhere else. Like I see it so much. And a lot of that is nothing to do with them at all, but it's what this industry does. And that's like the one thing that I really had to get a new orientation around. And I have to do it at least like once or twice, uh, probably a couple more times a year. But just like being in an industry where people really, truly only judge you by the last thing that you did. And if it wasn't close enough for them to remember, it's just like, mm, you know, and I and I still encounter it. I encounter I mean, I was out the other night and it's like, you know, someone made a comment and was like, oh, yeah, I didn't know that you left the paper. And I was just like, okay. It's <laughs> like, okay, you know, because I don't, I don't, you know, I feel like you want me to feel something when you say that. I think you want me to react in a certain kind of way, but okay. Because also with that, what you just told me is that you haven't read anything that I've written in two years. And that's also perfectly okay. But don't follow that up thinking that you then get some level of like personal interaction. Because why? If yeah. you don't know that about me, then that should let you know where you are, you know, in my yeah. life. Or and if and I don't fault anybody for not knowing that. But also at a certain point, I can't still be the person that's like, well, you know, yeah, I left, and then this is what I'm, I'm not doing that. I don't want Absolutely. to. I don't have any interest. You know, that's why you don't. You know, people who follow me on social media, you don't see me really saying anything ever. You know, like these are the stories I'm working on. This is stuff that I like whatever. I don't do the whole thing of like, this is what happened to me. And this is, this is who did it or that What for, yeah. you know, I think for, I think at least for the way that my brain works is like, I had to heal in so many ways from the person that like got lost and the person who I had to find, you know, which I've, I've, found, you know, and I, and I write that, I write that in the book. I write, a, you know, about how, you know, so much of doing this book led me back to finding my voice and, you know, what that meant for me and like to even be in a situation where one person is excited about it makes me really, really happy, let alone like the really incredible thing of just like so much good reaction, you know, and it's not out yet. And like in the excitement and like, you know, people who are hitting me and are just like, I've been waiting for you to do this. And like, I know that you've wanted to do this and just like really enjoying this particular moment because it's like, you know, 15 years in the making, you know, in one way where it's just like, oh my goodness, you know, I, I really am only able to sit here because I, chose myself, you know, and I, and I, and I, and I followed my instinct and I followed, you know, what it was that I wanted to do. And I didn't look back. Mic drop. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. And just so everyone knows who's listening and I'm, I know I'm going to say this in the intro anyway. The book that Garrick is talking about is a forthcoming book. 
It is titled, Didn't We Almost Have It All in Defense of Whitney Houston? And it is out yes. February of 2022, and it is already getting incredible reviews. So, uh. <laughs> so Garrick, I ask, I finish every interview with one yes. question and you, okay. you answer it however, whatever occurs to you. Okay. What moves you? What moves me is doing the things that bring me joy more than anything else. Um, and that's really important because I have survived an industry that does not prioritize that that does not care about that, um, that does not have much interest in facilitating that, particularly for people who look like me, people who came from where I came from. Um, you know, I've learned so much about what my passion is and why I do it, that's that's never that's never like left me. But what I had to really find again was okay, what are the things that are going to actually really truly bring me joy with this talent that I'm blessed to have? You know, I'm grateful to be doing the thing that I've wanted to do since I was a child. And I am really grateful to um, be able to do it at a particular level that I never thought was possible um, at a length of time that I didn't think was actually possible at all. Um, you know, all of these, all of these things, you know, that I just didn't really imagine for myself, um, you know, as a young boy that wanted to do this, as a young Black queer boy wanting to do this. You know, there's so many different things that I had to push through in order to be the person that I am, be the writer that I am, be the anything that I am, and to be in a phase of it where I am 1,000% motivated by what are the things that are going to bring me joy, but also allow me to stand really firmly in my purpose, which I do believe is to document our culture and to also really help us all understand our culture in ways, in ways that we show up in it, in ways that it impacts our lives, in ways that it drives us, in ways that, um, you know, is more than just somebody's got a new album out and you wrote about it, or somebody put out a new show or a new film and like here's the feature and it's got my name on it and like those things are cool and i still enjoy a lot of it i you know i totally enjoy it but to be able to be in this moment where you know for five years i dreamed of writing a book that was about scholarship that was about um legacy that was about you know celebrating someone who meant so much to the entire world who was not always shown the same kindness um to be able to do that and have 
anybody want it, let alone multiple people want it, is literally the stuff of my wildest dreams. But that is what actually brings me joy, is to be able to be in a position to do that and also to have people now look at me and say, okay, like, yes, you you worked for this. You worked really, really, really hard. You, I've been reading you for all these years and I'm so excited for this new phase and, and people recognize it. And also, you know, support me in a way of telling me, you know, oh, this thing that I read helped me understand this or, hey, you know, I know your book came out four years ago, but I just read it and I have a whole new understanding of, you know, not just rap, but also like what these men went through and like what that looks like now. And to, you know, so all of those things, you know, it's cool. I mean, I heard from a professor that's like, oh yeah, I like teach parts of your book. And I'm like, holy crap, you know, there's a part of me that just never imagined any of that, never thought of any of that. And like, that's not why I wake up to do this. Why I wake up to do this is you know, wanting to document our culture, specifically also Black culture too, in a way that I think deserves scholarship. I think it deserves really, you know, deep intellectual thought. I think it deserves um, all of these things that I have seen so many other people get, but I often never see Black women receive. And that is something that really motivates me to do what I do um, because I was raised by Black women. My whole tribe was Black women, you know, and so that's always been the strongest motivator for me. But it's also really a reflection of just who I am. Like, I want to be able to continue to tell our stories in ways that no matter what walk of life you come from, you learn something walking away from it. You have a new interest walking away from it. That that thrills me. It thrills me to hear someone say, oh, I read this piece that you did and I had never heard of this person, but I looked it up and that song, oh my God, I loved it. And it, and it helped me through this or got me through this. And it's like, yes, they might've never found that if they didn't read this piece. And they probably only read it because they like me or they probably only read it because you know they're a fan of the last two things that I did. But that is a, that's part of the privilege of what of of what I've also worked for too, and so to be able to really see all of it come together at one point that brings me a lot of joy, and that is you know that's what moves me every single day, and following my instincts, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh my God, I I really I I can guarantee you that everybody listening what they're going to take away from this is truly that you are giving them permission. Again, there's that word again, That's but it's what we need. It's yeah. what we need from each other, giving them permission need. to listen yep. to themselves and, and follow their true North, whatever that is for them. Yes. Yeah. Garrick Kennedy. Okay. Before we go really quickly, GarrickKennedy.net is your website. Is that where they can sign up to get your essays through Coda or do they need to go to? So you could actually just go to coda.bulletin.com. Okay. Coda.bulletin.com. I'll put it in the show notes also. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then they put in, cause I've, I've been able to follow it because we're connected on social media, but if they go in there and then type in Garrett Kennedy into the search, that's how they subscribe to you. Awesome. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. 
Thank you so much again. This was absolutely marvelous. So much fun. It was was such a joy. It was such a joy. Awesome. Thank you, Garrick. Well, I will be talking to you soon. Yes. And um, thank you so much again for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to What Moves You with Jesse. Let's stay connected. You can find more ideas and strategies on being human on my Instagram at What Moves You with Jesse. Sign up for my newsletter or learn more about working with me at WhatMovesYouWithJesse.com. And please rate and review the show and let us know what you think and what resonated. I read every single review. They mean so much to me. You can also call in on our hotline with your thoughts on what resonated there too. It is always live at 818-646-JESS. That's 818-646-JESS. What Moves You with Jesse is produced by Mike McGraw and Tinker City Music. Now, let's take a deep breath and give ourselves permission to live in this moment for what truly moves you.